So this is our individuation in light of notions of form and information. Uh, we're picking up from page 348 of the translation. Uh, and so that is in the fourth part on collective individuation, the second chapter of that part, and then the second section of that chapter. So last time we, we started on the second chapter, we saw this distinction between the individual and the subject that he makes. So uh, the subject is the individual plus the this part this um, part of the pre-individual that is associated with it. So uh, we have the these three phases of being. Um, so there's the pre-individual being uh, this undifferentiated phase of being that undergoes a, a differentiation or a split of some kind into um, an individual and then an associated uh, milieu that remains unindividuated. Uh, and then the third phase, what he calls the trans-individual, which uh, we've, we've seen in a number of different, light, different aspects throughout this part of the book. So the subject is the individual together with the associated milieu that is not individuated. So the subject is uh, something greater than the individual. Sort of a parenthetical remark about language, which uh, is something that doesn't come up very much for Simondon, um, but he, he says that we can't treat language as the uh, basis for signification. Um, we have to go in the other direction. We have to take some sort of pre-existing signification as the basis for language. So it's only because the subject is a, a subject that has the capacity to undergo individuation that they can have something like an understanding of significations and uh, that understanding of significations is the prerequisite or the basis for language um, and so he's distancing himself here from or uh, maybe not explicitly but um, there's a, a pretty widespread uh, consensus or or school of thought I guess that takes uh, language as something fundamental um, to to the capacity for understanding in human beings uh, and so Simondon is uh, is differentiating himself from that tradition uh, and then we saw his discussion of sexuality um, and sexuality for Simondon is something that is sort of intermediate or uh, that mediates between the pre-individual and the individual. Uh, so it's something within the individual, but it's not purely of the individual. So it, it surpasses the individual. Um, and he he criticizes Freud or sets himself in opposition to Freud in that he thinks Freud uh, treats sexuality as uh, a property of the individual uh, as opposed to something outside of the individual. Um, yes, and so he uses this term, metaxu, the Greek term, um, meaning something beyond, um, something uh, that goes beyond the individual. Uh, and then, so yes, yeah, so he, he argues that um, sexuality is something that goes beyond the individual. And if we want to talk about the pathogenic uh, factors uh, in a person, uh, we have to look not just at the individual and not, not just at what is in the, uh, in the individual, but Rather, we have to look to the subject. So this relationship between the pre-individual and the the individuated being that is the individual is something that uh, can bring about pathologies uh, like neuroses, for example. 
And, and so this notion of the subject as containing both the, the pre-individual reality and the uh, individuated being is, is sort of brought to bear on the relationship between the individual and the collective. Uh, and so he, uh, and we've seen um, in the last chapter, his, his account of the collective as, as a, not just a grouping of already individuated beings, but as a, a new individuation. And so it's only because the subject um, has this uh, unindividuated aspect to it. It has some portion of pre-individual reality still contained within it. It's only because of that that it can actually undergo a, a second individuation in the form of a collective. He, he makes reference to Sondi, uh, who was a, um, a psychologist who came up with this um, concept of uh, uh, analysis of destiny. And so Simondon takes this to be a way of uh, accounting for this pre-individual or this um, aspect of uh, nature, what he calls nature in, in the human being. Uh, I, don't, I really don't know anything about Sondi, um, but that would be something to investigate, like what exactly Simondon was drawing on in his work. But yeah, so that's the, the sort of the main piece of what we looked at last time. Uh, and then we're going to continue to see more about the relationship between the subject and the individual, and then uh, the subject uh, and the collective uh, in the, the remainder of this chapter. Okay, so let's, um, I'll start with this uh, short subsection, subsection two. Okay, so the subject and the individual. One of the things that seems to emerge from this partial and hypothetical study is that the name individual is improperly given to a more complex reality, that of the complete subject, which in addition to individuated reality includes within it an unindividuated pre-individual or even natural aspect. This unindividuated charge of reality conceals a, a power of individuation, which within the subject alone cannot conclude whether due to the being's poverty, isolation, or the lack of a systematic whole. Gathered with other subjects, the subject can correlatively be the theater and agent of a second individuation that gives birth to the trans-individual collective and links the subject to other subjects. The collective is not nature, but it supposes the preliminary existence of a nature attached to subjects between which coll collectivity is established by their overlapping. Beings are linked to one another in the collective, not actually as individuals, but as subjects, i.e. as beings that contain the pre-individual. This doctrine would aim to consider individuation as a phase of being. This phase, moreover, cannot exhaust the possibilities of pre-individual being, such that a first individuation gives birth to beings that still goes with them. Though they are too weak in each being, these potentials joined together can carry out a second individuation, the collective, thus linking individuated beings via the pre-individual that they conserve and include. The particular being is thus more than an individual. It is first an individual on its own as, as the result of a first individuation. A second time, it is a member of the collective, which is what makes it participate in a second individuation. The collective is not a milieu for the individual, but a set of participations in which it enters through this second individuation that choice is, is when it is expressed as a trans-individual reality. The subject being can be conserved as a, a more, sorry, can be conceived as a more or less perfectly coherent system of three successive phases of being, the pre-individual phase, the individuated phase, and the trans-individual phase, 
all of which partially but not completely corresponds to what is designated by the concepts of nature, individual, and spirituality. The subject is not a phase of being opposed to that of the object, but the condensed and systematized unity of the three phases of... Right, so this um, this subsection is um, pretty um, pretty clear, I think, in general. It, um, it doesn't require a lot of um, analysis, um, but um, maybe just to point back to a couple of points that, um, that he's brought up before. Uh, so again, he's using the word nature as a, a synonym for the, the charge of the pre-individual that remains with the individual, uh, in, in constituting the subject. Um, and, and so he's, he's drawing from, uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers to use this term nature in this way. Um, and, um, so he, he talks about these three phases of being. Uh, so the pre-individual phase and then the splitting into the um, individuated being and its associated milieu uh, as the second phase. And then the third phase is this trans-individual. Um, so the, this, what we've seen throughout this last um, chapter, we've seen the, the way that the trans-individual um, is something within the individual, uh, sorry, within the subject that is uh, beyond the the uh, individuated being that it is, um, and so uh, anything like a collective uh, requires this um, this ability for the subject to undergo a further different a further individuation um, after the one that uh, produces it as a as an individuated being. Uh, and and so it's the association of the uh, potentials that that are contained within multiple individuals that allows for uh, a further uh, a further individuation to uh, and Angus has posted a comment here in the chat um, about how uh, nature is associated with the pre-individual, um, but in other places he associates the pre-individual with the future. Uh, so there's a sort of uh, temporality. Of the a priori and a posteriori for Simon Don, uh, yes, uh, that's definitely um, that's definitely the case. So he he um, we saw this uh, even back in the introduction of the book where he he talks about the a priori and a posteriori, and then he introduces this term a presenti um, as um, the this temporality of uh, of genesis or of uh, transductive thinking um, and uh, so yeah so in in uh, later parts of the book we've seen um, how the pre-individual is associated with the future as uh, as in the sense of uh, being a set of potentials for for future transformations so the there's always this charge of potentiality that remains with the uh, with individuated beings uh, or alongside individuated beings that allows them to undergo further transformations in the future. Uh, right. And then uh, a question from Varun: um, Is the pre-individual meant to be understood as an excess? I think um, I'm not sure if Simon Don would would use the term excess um, because. For Simon Don, it um, the pre-individual uh, precedes the um, the individuated being uh, in terms of um, a sort of logical order of priority or um, 
in terms of the the order of of genesis uh so um the pre-individual is is what is more fundamental or more uh uh primary and then the individuated being is um is the result of a, a process of uh, of genesis, a process of individuation that occurs within the the pre-individual being. So it's not like I think the term excess suggests something like um, something that uh, it would be maybe the other order of priority it would be uh, individuals, and then there would be some sort of excess within those individuals. Um, so I think uh, I think the the order of priority that Simon Don um, uses uh, would suggest that um, excess is, is probably not a term that he would want to use. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. So um, the way I understand it is that the pre-individual is like a field of potentials and the individual is a sort of, would it be correct to say that the individual is a resolution to the potentials of the pre-individual? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's right. So there's... Um, there's this notion of disparation that Simon Don uses. Uh, so uh, we've seen this um, a few times throughout the book, but um, it, it, he's drawing it from um, the psychology of, of visual perception. Uh, so in the same way that the two retinal images um, in your eyes are different, uh, but then they combine to form a single image of the world or a single perception of the world, um, uh, in the same way, um, the pre-individual, um, as this set of potentials, includes um, this tension or this uh, disparation between different elements of reality, and the the process of individuation is a process of solving those problems or of uh, um, uh, resolving of of including uh, both aspects of this disparation or uh, these incompatible aspects of reality um, and, and making them compatible by inventing or discovering a new dimension. Yeah, thanks for that. It helps. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so individuation is always a, a resolution of, of a problem. Uh, so, and this is, this is the case, um, like when we talk about um, the psychical individuation, we can sort of understand that in a, a literal sense, like, um, uh, the the subject is presented with a, a problem of uh, you know, making compatible two different drives or two different um, goals or or um, making compatible two different perceptions uh, or any other uh, psychical contents that we want to talk about. Um, but this is also the case even when we're talking about physical individuation. So the formation of a crystal is um, is um, a solution to a problem of um, the the potentials that are present in the the liquid form of the of the substance. But um, well, sorry, one last tangential question. So the individual is uh, it would be incorrect to understand the individual as an accident, right? Um, I would say that. Um, there is a, a certain aspect that is accidental um, in the sense that uh, for Simon Don, there's always something external that that um, sort of uh, elicits the process of of individuation. So um, in in the part on um, 
on physical individuation, he talks about the material condition of individuation, just you know the the substance that is going to undergo individuation, and then the uh, informational condition. So in the case of crystallization, there has to be a germ of a crystal, um, uh, some sort of uh, external factor that is uh, inserted into the uh, liquid form, and and then the liquid undergoes crystallization uh, around that crystalline germ. Um, and um, so there's this sort of uh, external factor that intervenes, this crystalline germ that has to be introduced into the liquid. Um, this is a, a sort of external or accidental factor. Um, but then the structure of the crystal that forms is is not accidental. So it, it each substance has uh, a certain crystalline structure that, or a certain set of crystalline structures that it's capable of producing. Um, so there's a certain um, a certain accidental aspect to the individual in terms of that informational condition, but then um, the material condition uh, brings about a, a non-accidental aspect of the individual um, by undergoing structuration. Yeah, that helps. Thanks. Right. Um, so I think we can go on to the next um, subsection. Uh, let's see how long. Yeah, this is another short one. So if someone else would like to read the, the whole subsection, um, about a page or so. Oh, yeah, I can read. Uh, subsection three, the empirical and the transcendental ontogenesis and pre-critical ontology, the collective as signification that overcomes a desperation. This manner of envisioning the subject allows us to avoid the difficult distinction of the transcendental and the empirical. It also saves anthropology from the dead end of an absolute point of departure for the knowledge of man based on an essence. The individual is not everything in man, for the individual is the result of a preliminary individuation. A pre-individual knowledge of the being is necessary. The being as individuated must not be considered as absolutely given. Ontogenesis must be integrated into the domain of philosophical examination instead of considering the individuated being as absolutely first. This integration would allow for the surpassing of certain ontological postulates of critique, postulates which are essentially relative to individuation. It would also allow us to refuse a classification of beings into genera that do not correspond to their genesis, but instead correspond to a knowledge of beings considered after genesis concerning which we have asserted that it was the foundation of every scholasticism. It is therefore a question of witnessing the genesis of individuated beings based on pre-individual reality, which contains potentials that are resolved and determined within systems of individuation. To try to lead to this institution of a pre-critical ontology that is an ontogenesis, we have wanted to create the notion of phases of being. This notion to us has seemed to be established on the basis of the notion of information, which is destined to replace the notion of form, such as it is implicated in the insufficient hylomorphic schema. Information is not a system of form and matter, but a system of form and form, which supposes inequality and homogeneity of both terms, along with a certain discrepancy that found signification and collective reality, such as visual disparation. The collective is the signification obtained by the superposition of beings that are disparate by themselves in a single system. It is an encounter of dynamic forms established into a system, a realized 
consummated signif significative that requires passage to a superior level, i.e. the advent of the collective as a unified system of reciprocal beings. The collective personality of the individual is what can become significant relative to other collective personalities evoked at the same moment by a play of reciprocal causality. Reciprocity, internal resonance, is the condition for the advent of the collective. The collective is what results from a secondary individuation relative to vital individuation, since it takes back up what the first individuation had left unused, a bare nature in the living being. The second individuation does not fully overlap the first. Despite the collective, the individual dies as an individual, and participation in the collective cannot save it from this death, which is a consequence of the first individuation. The second individuation, that of the collective and the spiritual, gives birth to trans-individual significations that do not die with the individuals by which they are constituted. What there is a pre-individual nature in the subject can survive the individual that has a living being as signification. Non-omnis moriar, not everything dies, is true in a certain sense. But it would be necessary to be able to alter this judgment with an index that deprives it of personality in the first person. This is no longer the individual, and it is barely the subject that lives beyond itself. The charge of nature associated with the subject, which has become a signification integrated into the collective, is what survives here and now of the individual contained in the subject being. The only chance for the individual, or rather for the subject, to live beyond itself in some fashion is to become signification, to make it such that something of itself becomes signification. This is still a fairly unsatisfying perspective for the subject, since the task of the discovery of significations and of the collective is submitted to chance. Nevertheless, the subject, can, the subject being can hardly live beyond itself, and the generalized collective accepts information. Participating in collective individuation, the subject infuses something of itself, which is not individuality, into a reality that is more stable than it. There is contact with the being via associated nature. This contact is information. So this, this idea of the part of the subject living on after the death of the individual um, sort of recalls that earlier that section, I guess, we read a couple months ago about uh, the persistence of the, um, the like, psychological individual after death um, through the reversal or the inversion of the sign of the individual um, in these kind of rituals of remembrance or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this, this notion of an immortality through the collective is something that we've seen throughout the last uh, two parts of the book on psychical individuation and uh, collective individuation, um, sort of interspersed throughout those two parts of the book. Um, we, so for Simon Don, um, the, there's, no, there's no sort of personal immortality in the sense of um, uh, the individual surviving in, as a sort of disembodied soul or whatever other um, depiction you, you would want to use of uh, personal Im immortality or personal survival after death. Um, but what there is, um, is this um, sort of impersonal um, survival uh, or this impersonal immortality um, 
and and he uh, he talks about this in relation to spirituality um, in uh, a part that we read uh, a few months ago, maybe or uh, maybe a month ago. Um, so he talks about um, the spirituality of um, the works uh, of a uh, of the poet. The uh, like Horace talks about the works that are more lasting than bronze. Um, uh, so there's this notion of the spirituality as what um, survives uh, in the collective uh, and, and gives the individual or gives the subject rather um, the capacity for this impersonal immortality. Um, but then there's also this other aspect of spirituality, this um, fleeting spirituality. So he, he talks about the, the gesture of the slave trying to escape the, its master um, so the the slave um, has this gesture that um, sort of disappears as soon as it happens, uh, and and this is a kind of spirituality um, uh, in the same or in a in this alternate um, relation with temporality. So it's this disappearing um, uh, spirituality, uh, and so um, I think I think we can also um, treat this second form of the spiritual, this um, sort of fleeting spirituality as, um, as yes, I think uh, exactly that uh, is right, Angus. So there's um, some sort of eternal, um, there's something eternal about this moment, even if it sort of disappears without leaving a trace, if the slave ends up being caught and uh, executed and, and there's no... Um, Sort of lasting result of this uh, moment. Um, there's still um, there's still this sort of eternal aspect um, in in the way that this gesture of the slave can be uh, repeated in the collective. Uh, so you can look at um, the Spartacus rebellion in um, uh, in ancient Rome. And the way that this has served as a, a sort of inspiration for slave revolts, um, like the the Haitian Revolution um, um, in the nineteenth century, sort of uh, looked back at, at this as a as a model, um, and and you can have a, a repetition or a re uh, re incarnation in a way of these types of uh, fleeting gestures that that allows for them to. Um, to have this uh, immortality to them. Uh, so even something that um, at the time and, and for centuries afterwards has no lasting significance that seems to have disappeared uh, can be sort of revitalized or re, uh, recreated by a future generation. Um, and, and so it's that in that sense that there's um, this, this impersonal immortality uh, of of the, of the spiritual, um, even when it's uh, even when it's something that uh, has no uh, immediate effect. I don't want to digress too much, but um, I think that this is interesting to think of in in light of the idea that the the trans individual is sort of the present, um, because I it seems like I mean it, there's a kind of shared present of this uh, the desperate gesture and revolt um 
but you know, even if I guess the present is not really at the same time, I think this kind of links to, you know, we talked a little bit about like Emily Dickinson, um, as like being a part of a collective, even though she was sort of like an extreme recluse insofar as she wrote this poetry that was taken up later on. So I, I don't know the idea of the present that isn't necessarily like contemporaneous is interesting. Yeah, and we saw um, a few weeks ago this notion of this um, ordeal of solitude that is is involved in um, at least uh, one aspect of the trans individual. We we've sort of come to the conclusion that there are sort of two sides to this to the trans individual, and and one of them um, requires this ordeal of solitude. So it's not just um, you know getting together with a group of friends or or even um, you know, going to a, a some sort of event with hundreds of other people um, that brings about a collective in the proper sense of the term. Um, there has to be this um, uh, this ordeal of solitude, so the the subject has to go through this um, sort of uh, uh, disadaptation in order to. Um, re-individuate uh in the form of the collective uh and um so yeah so someone who uh as a a poet or um an artist or or whatever other um work of spirituality in the broadest sense um they they might be completely isolated in their own time they might be working um without having any recognition or without anyone else um sort of uh being part of a collective with them but then uh future generations can can take up that work that was done in isolation and um make it part of a the collective signification uh and and have a a collective individuation around that work uh that makes it uh have this uh, impersonal immortality i am uh, curious to return back to the opening of that section so uh the way he um, sort of solves the problem of the Kantian distinction between the transcendental and the empirical, right, the relationship between thought and being, by using ontogenesis. I mean, I think this is really interesting in relation to the way Simon Don talks about the epistemological problem of individuation, right? Because what he says about it is that we can, because, well, to know individuation is to already indi- individuate. So the way, you know, we come to the knowledge of individuation is essentially through this analogical operation, that is to say, um, the individuation of our knowledge must correlate with the individuation of our object. And in, that, in, in, in forming that distinction, the knowledge is, he sort of gets past that relationship between thought and being by saying that the, individ, the knowledge of individuation is a, an analogical operation of the same way we individuate knowledge, it's just, it just matches with the way we individuate the object or the way the object individuates. Yeah, so um, the, there, there's a bit in the introduction where he talks about um, the, yeah, that, exactly that relationship be, uh, between transductive uh, um, knowledge, so knowing um, a process of individuation, and then um, uh, transductive thinking as, um, as a, a thinking that undergoes individuation. Uh, and, and so we we only you you can't have knowledge of individuation through concepts as something fixed uh so you can't say that um you can't uh 
have knowledge of individuation by classifying individuals. Uh, he, he sort of constantly brings up um, this impossibility of uh, classificatory thought as uh, a way of knowing individuals in their individuation. Um, and, and this comes up uh, also in the, in the work on, um, on the mode of existence of technical objects. Uh, he makes the same remark about uh, classification uh, in that work as well. Um, and and so you can't you can't have um, a knowledge of individuation by classifying an individual under a certain concept and then uh, you know a, a hierarchy of concepts of species and genus and so on. Um, you can only have knowledge of the individual by undergoing individuation yourself uh, as a um, as a knowing subject. Um, and so here, in relation to this distinction between the, the empirical and the transcendental subject, um, so this, of course, is a, one of the more obscure points of Kant's system. Um, so, I mean, we, we have a, a, an idea, at least a, a pre-theoretical idea of what it means to be um, uh, an empirical subject, um, where we... Uh, um, we experience ourselves as um, spatial-temporally spatial located beings. We're um, in a certain place and time, and we have relationships with other um, objects around us and so on. Uh, but then in some uh, obscure sense or some not quite obvious sense, um, we also have to understand ourselves as being responsible for the, the spatial-temporal structure of our experience. Um, uh, for Kant, I mean, um, and and so the the forms of space and time are um, are uh, imposed by the subject in some way, uh, and what what relationship there is between this um, transcendental subject and the empirical subject is a a, a difficult question, and and even in uh, and Kant even says um, even in internal experience we only ever experience ourselves as uh, empirical subjects. Um, so when we, um, when we think of ourselves, uh, we, we are always thinking of ourselves as, as um, you know, a certain person uh, as opposed to other people and having certain uh, personal uh, characteristics or you know, preferences and uh, personality and so on. Um, all this is already sort of built in and we can never experience ourselves as um, uh, um, transcendental subjects, even in, a, in inner experience. Uh, and, and yeah, so he appeals to this notion of a synthetic unity of apperception. Um, so um, somehow the, the unity of experience is itself, uh, uh, um, the unity of experience is the constitution of a, a transcendental subject. Um, so the, the, the unity of the subject and the unity of experience are sort of co-constitutive or appear at the same time. Um, but um, for Simon Don, he, he argues that this notion of a transcendental subject um, uh, or uh, this distinction between empirical subject and transcendental subject uh, is is already presupposing that there is something like an individual. The subject is is something like an individual, uh, and then um, the question is like how does how is that individual 
um, related to other beings and, and uh, in experience and how does it um, how do the the various forms of that subject um, get sort of imposed on the the matter of sensation and so on whereas for Simon Dong what we want to do is um, instead of presupposing the, that there's something like a subject as an individual we want to uh, observe the genesis of uh, of the individual um, so the individual is always something secondary something that uh, appears or something that that has a genesis for Simon Don uh, and then we aren't sort of faced with this problem of relating the subjects to other entities um, because the, the the subject is is always a, a product of uh, a process of individuation that that um, that goes beyond uh, the the subject. So there's, there's always um, this associated milieu that comes together with it. Um, so yeah, so this is uh, sort of how Simondon wants to get around this whole problem of the relationship between the empirical and transcendental subjects for Kant. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting critique because what he's saying is um, the 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 uh, the distinction between the transcendental and the empirical comes up only if we um, if we don't give an accurate account of the genetic we don't give a genealogical or genetic account of the subject. Yeah, exactly. So if we presuppose the subject as uh, an already individuated being and we start from that from that point, then we're sort of stuck. Um, we can't really give a, an intelligible account of um, what the relationship is between the empirical and transcendental subjects. And, and there's a sort of mysterious, um, the, the whole notion of a transcendental subject remains sort of mysterious. Um, whereas what Simon Don wants to do is to um, actually sort of show us the genesis of the subject. Uh, and, and then we don't have this mysterious uh, transcendental subject to deal with. Okay, um, so let's go on to the next um, section, which uh, is a bit longer. So let's read about a page or so and then stop for a discussion if someone else would like to read. I, I don't mind giving it a go. We're at the gist, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The gist of this study is the following. The hylomorphic schema must be abandoned. To think individuation, veritable individuation, does not amount to a form-taking. The operation of individuation is much more general and much vaster phenomenon than simply form-taking. Form-taking can be thought based on individuation, but individuation can, cannot be thought based on the paradigm of form-thinking. The hylomorphic schema includes and accepts a dark zone, which is precisely the central operational zone. It is the example and the model of all logical processes, though which a fundamental role is attributed to borderline cases, to the extreme terms of a reality organized into series, as if the series could be generated based on its boundaries. According to the method presupposed to replace the hylomorphic schema, the being must be grasped in its entirety, and the milieu of an ordinary ordered real is as substantial as it is extreme terms. The dark zone conveyed by the hylomorphic schema projects its shadow over every reality known by way of the schema. The hylomorphic schema improperly replaces the knowledge of the genesis of a real. It prevents the knowledge of ontogenesis. Should I read the next paragraph too? Uh, yeah, you can keep going. Uh, yeah, can you read the next couple paragraphs? 
In psychology, the median zone of the being is thrust back into the irrational and the unknowable that cannot be experienced or known. The psychosomatic relation poses unsolvable problems. However, perhaps it should be asked whether the notion of the psychophysiological relation is illusory and, mere, and merely expresses the fact that one has wanted to consider the being as the result of a form-taking and to grasp it by way of the hylomorphic schema after it has been constituted. The impossibility of reaching a clear relation of the soul and the body merely expresses the being's resistance to the imposition of the hylomorphic schema. The substantialized terms of soul and body can be nothing but artifacts that stem from this effort to know the being by way of the schema, which first requires a preliminary reduction of the entire spectrum of reality that constitutes the being in its extreme terms, considered as matter and form. The study of groups also reveals the same existence of a dark zone. The body of groups is known by way of social morphology. Group representations are the object of interpsychology and microsociology, but between the two extremes extends the dark relational zone, that of the real collective, the ontogenesis which seems to be thrust back into the unknowable. According to this, the attitude of sociological objectivity to grasp the reality of groups as a fact is to come after the individuation that founds the collective. To start with interpsychological postulates is to place oneself before the group individuation and to want to extract this group of physical dynamisms that are internal to individuals or to individuals' tendencies or social needs. However, the veritable collective that is contemporaneous with the operation of individuation cannot be known as a relation between the extreme terms of the pure social and pure physical. The collective is the very being that spans the spectrum from social exteriority to physical interiority. The social and the physical are nothing but borderline cases. They are not found in they're not the foundations of reality, the true terms of relation. There is nothing but extreme terms for the gaze of knowledge. Insofar as knowledge must be applied to a hylomorphic schema, a pair of clear notions that that cling to an obscure relation. The representation of individual individuation that grasps the being in its center of activity stands against the hylomorphic schema. But in order for the notion of individuation to be fully dissociated from the hylomorphic schema, a procedure of thought must be elaborated that does not invoke a classification and, and foregoes the definition of essence via the inclusion or exclusion of characteristics. This is because classification, which permit, permits a knowledge of beings via common genus and specific differences, supposes the usage of the hylomorphic schema. Form gives to the genus its signification relative to the species, which are its matter. The thought that can be called transductive does not consider that the unity of a being is conferred by the form informing a matter, but by a definite regime of operation of individuation that, fa that, founds, that, that, that founds the being absolutely. The being's cohesion forms the being's unity, not the rapport of a form to a matter. The being's unity is a regime of activity that transverses the being, going from part to part, converting structure into function and function into structure. The being is, a rel is relation for relation, is the eternal resonance of the being's relative to itself, the manner in which it is conditioned reciprocally within itself, splitting and reconverting to unity. The being's unity can only be understood based on individuation, absolute ontogenesis. The being is one because it is a symbol of itself harmonizing with and reverberating within itself. Relation can never be conceived as a relation between pre-existing terms since it is a reciprocal regime of information exchange and of causality in a system that individuates. 
relation exists physically, biologically, psych psych psychologically, collectively as the eternal resonance of the individuated being, relation expresses individuation as at being center. Oh, yeah, we can stop here. Um, there we go. Oh, yeah, there, great. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're able Thank to you. unmute now. Um, yeah, so this bit, um, this last section of the chapter is basically a, a summary of what we've seen in this whole um, part of the book. Um, he's, he's sort of um, summarizing before we get to the conclusion, um, but he, he's calling back to this criticism of the hylomorphic schema that we saw in the first part of the book. Um, so uh, this hylomorphic schema, so hylomorphism means the relationship between form and matter. Um, or, or a representation in which um, uh, entities consist of a form and a matter. And for Simon Don, uh, the, the major criticism that he makes is that um, the actual uh, relationship between the form and the matter is left obscure um, in, in the hylomorphic schema. So you have um, a clear notion of form and you have a, a clear notion of matter. Um, but then when you actually look at how the form comes to comes to be uh, uh, imposed on the matter, um, the the actual relationship is left obscure. Uh, and, and the example that he, he starts from in this book is the example of forming a brick. Um, and so you have this geometrical uh, form uh, of the brick and you want to impose it on, on a, a bunch of clay. Um, uh, but then the actual operation of imposing that form on the clay is um, is left obscure. Uh, and so in, instead of starting from the two extreme terms uh, of form and matter, we, we instead want to start from the middle of the, the process. So we want to start from the individuation process itself. Um, um, we start from the the individuation itself and we can see form and matter as uh, sort of um, extreme cases that that or abstractions from the uh, what is actually uh, real, which is the the process of individuation. Um, so, in the case um, in the case of uh, soul and body is one example that he he brings up here. Um, so the the relationship between soul and body is presented as one of uh, matter and form, or form and matter, I should say. Uh, so the the soul as the form of the body. Um, this is a, a sort of classical Aristotelian uh, notion of what what the soul consists in, and um, uh, so for Simon Don, this is um, uh, an inadequate. Um, uh, an inadequate depiction of of uh, psychosomatic unity because uh, it again leaves obscure what the relationship is and and uh, the relationship between these two terms. And then we see, uh, particularly with um, Descartes, um, when when we get to this um, idea of the relationship between the soul and the body, we have this. Um, strange doctrine of the pineal gland as being, uh, in some sense, the locus of, um, of, um, of the relationship between soul and body, uh, and, and, uh, 
working through the, the subtle matter that fills our nerves um, and changing the direction of the subtle matter um, through some uh, mysterious process. Um, and any, any doctrine of um, uh, dualism of soul and body seems to be faced with the same type of problem if we conceive of soul and body as these two distinct substances that are supposed to interact in some way uh it seems um it seems like that interaction is always going to be left obscure uh and so we can instead start from the genesis of the psychical individual uh and um then something purely somatic or something purely psychical would be uh sort of extreme points in in the series uh, that makes up that genesis rather than um, the starting points that then have to interact with each other in some way. And this also applies to um, the relationship between the individual and the group. Um, so if you start from the notion of, um, uh, of the group as um, this sort of objective whole that the individual is subordinated to, you're, you're sort of presupposing um, the existence of the whole, uh, and then um, the whole is is a sort of individual, like a giant individual in which each of us is incorporated. Uh, or then alternately, the other side uh, of the coin is if you start from individuals as already constituted beings, and then you try to um, build up the whole, build up a, a group out of them and uh, so various ways of doing this would be to um, to sort of attribute a certain kind of needs to the individuals that um, can only be fulfilled through association with other individuals. So an individual has needs for protection from animals or whatever uh, whatever need you want to take, and uh, can only fulfill that need by associating with other individuals. And, and so that's the origin of the group. Uh, um, so these are sort of two um, opposite ways of uh, of um, reducing the group to an individuality. Either the group itself is one uh, already constituted individual, uh, or the group is just the product of um, of the needs that are inherent in the, all the individuals. Um, and so there's uh, either either way you you look at it or either side you start from there's no uh, actual genesis of an individual, and and so um, this notion of a collective genesis is meant to um, sort of avoid the difficulties of either of those positions and uh, allow us to um, observe the genesis of the collective rather than. Um, having uh, a presupposition of an individual uh, and, and having to explain its interaction with the group and so um, And yeah, and there's a question from Angus about, um, about this line uh, of form interacting with form uh, and um, asking, is, is this, um, uh, would an example of this idea be um, the, the points that I mentioned earlier about um, the supersaturated solution only being able to give rise to certain forms of crystal. Um, yeah, I think that um, this idea of form interacting with form um, is uh, is at work in in that example, um, in the sense that uh, 
the crystal the crystalline germ that is inserted into the solution um, has to be of the right form for a crystallization to happen. Um, so there's uh, uh, for a particular substance, it has um, a, a, a certain set of crystalline structures it is capable of taking on. And as long as the crystalline germ uh, has one of those structures, then the, uh, the solution will crystallize around the germ. Um, but then if you insert a germ with a different crystalline structure, uh, the crystallization process won't work properly. Um, you'll, you'll probably, um, I'm just guessing now, but I, I would assume what would happen is you would end up with a, um, a crystallization in, uh, in the form, uh, one of the forms that belongs to the, that substance, um, but it would crystallize around uh, this germ of a, a different form. And so the, the, there would be like multiple layers of uh, uh, of the crystal, and rather than a, a uniform crystalline structure. Um, so in general, um, there's always uh, there's always a form. Uh, there's never um, there's never a, a sort of pure matter in the sense of um, uh, the hylomorphic schema. So. Um, the matter already has a form and is already capable of taking on different forms through um, uh, given the, the potentials that are present within it. Um, and it always interacts with other forms in, uh, in the way that the crystalline germ uh, interacts with the, the forms of the, the matter um, in, the, um, in the crystallization example. Uh, one other point that uh, um, I should probably mention, uh, something that we've seen um, a couple of times already, but just as a reminder, um, this notion of a of symbol, um, he used the term symbol uh, in the last paragraph that we read, I believe. Um, so um, whenever Simon Don is talking about symbols, he always has in mind this relationship between uh, Two complementary realities. Um, so uh, the the sort of uh, root meaning of the word symbol is a, a token that is broken in half. Uh, this was an ancient Greek practice of uh, having a token broken in half and using the two halves to recognize each other. Um, uh, and and this was used uh, as a way of maintaining a, a relationship between uh, two families, for example, where you'd pass on. Uh, the token or the the half token, um, and use it to recognize the the corresponding half in another family. Um, so whenever Simon Don talks about uh, a symbol, that's always the the image that he has in mind is this uh, these two half tokens that are complementary to each other. Right, and yeah, and so Angus has uh, posted a comment here that. Um, the pieces only fit together if we think uh, the milieu and um, if we think of form and matter as pieces, they don't fit together. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so the, the milieu and the individual arise together out of um, the, the pre-individual reality. Uh, so they're, they're complementary to each other, whereas form and matter are meant to be um, sort of uh, prior to the, the individual. Um, they're, they're notions that um, are meant to be clear in themselves and um, it's only uh, it's once they, they sort of 
once you try to fit those two notions together, they, they don't form the a symbol in the same way as the individual and its associated milieu do. Okay, so we can go on to the next bit here. Um, let's see if I can read the page or so. For being-to-being relation to be possible, there must be an individuation that envelops the beings between which there is relation. This supposes that there is within individuated beings a certain charge of the undetermined, i.e. of pre-individual reality that has passed through the operation of individuation without being effectively individuated. This charge of the undetermined can be called nature. It must not be conceived as pure virtuality, which would be an abstract notion arising to a certain extent from the hylomorphic schema but as a veritable reality charged with potentials, actually existing as potentials, i.e. as an energy of a metastable system. The notion of virtuality must be replaced with that of a system's metastability. The collective can emerge starting from the charge of pre-individual reality contained within individuated beings and not based on an encounter of previously existing form and matter. The individuation of the collective is the relation between individuated beings. The relation starting from individuated beings and depending on their very individuality taken as a term is not what found the relation and constitutes the collective. Without individuation, there can be no being, and without the being, there can be no relation. The bonds that can exist between already individuated beings and that would be established between their individualities, grasped on the basis of an individuation of the collective, would merely be an inter-individual relation, like the interpsychological relation. The collective has its own ontogenesis, its own operation of individuation that utilizes the potentials carried by the pre-individual reality contained in already individuated beings. The collective manifests through the internal resonance within the collective. It is real as a stable relational operation. It exists physikos and not logikos. The birth of an intersubjective relation is conditioned by the existence of this charge of nature within subjects the persistence of a pre-individuality within individuated beings. Manifestations like emotion in the individual being seem impossible to explain in accordance with only the content and structure of the individuated being. It is certainly possible to invoke a certain phylogenetic conditioning that influences ontogenesis and to reveal in emotion the characteristics of adaptation to critical situations. In fact, these aspects of adaptation raised by Darwin indeed exist, but they do not exhaust the whole reality of emotion. Through emotion, the being disadapts as much as it adapts. If adaptation is reduced to behaviors that guarantee the security of the individual qua individual. If, in fact, emotion poses problems to psychology that are so difficult to resolve, this is because it cannot be explained in accordance with the being considered as totally individuated. Emotion reveals the persistence of the pre-individual within the individuated being. It is this real potential that, within the natural undetermined, evokes within the subject the relation inside the collective that establishes itself. There is the collective to the extent that an emotion structures itself. In the situation of solitude, emotion is like an incomplete being that will only be able to systematize itself according to a collective that will individuate. Emotion is something pre-individual revealed within the subject and can be interpreted as interiority or exteriority. Emotion refers to exteriority and to to interiority because emotion is not something individuated. It is the exchange within the subject between the charge of nature and the individuated being's stable structures. Exchange between the pre-individual and the individuated 
emotion prefigures the discovery of the collective. Emotion is a calling into question of the being in its individual aspect insofar as its capacity to evoke an, an individuation of the collective, uh, sorry, insofar as it is the capacity to evoke an individuation of the collective that will overlap and link the individuated being. Right, so we have here this notion of relation, um, the, which is one of the key notions of this work. Um, and uh, again, this is pointing back to the introduction where he he sort of brings in the, the hypothesis or the principle that relation is going to have the status of being. Um, and um, a, a large part of this book is just working out the consequences of this hypothesis. Um, so um, it's only insofar as you have something like an ontogenesis that you can actually think of relation as having the status of being um, as opposed to uh, thinking of relation as something exterior to beings um, so so that uh, a being would have its inherent uh, properties, it would have uh, certain features that are uh, inherent to it, and then would only subsequently enter into relations as something external to it. Um, so we instead have to think of, uh, of relations as constituting what a being is. Um, and, and so it's only uh, through a, an account of ontogenesis that we can understand, uh, understand relation as uh, having the status of being, as, as um, being part of what an individual is or what an entity is. And um, so this, he, he also brings up this notion of metastability, um, which we've seen throughout the book. Um, uh, and then, so this notion of metastability is just the idea of uh, a state that is um, sort of provisionally stable. It, uh, it, um, it's a state that is capable of further transformation. Um, so there's, uh, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a, a fully stable state in the sense of a state that would be the, um, the, uh, uh, lack of potentials for further transformation. So um, it's only uh, a state that uh, is provisionally stable, but has the capacity for undergoing further transformation that is metastable. Uh, and so that he, he contrasts this with the, the notion of virtuality. Um, and um, I think we can... Um, we can sort of compare this to Bersan's idea of um, a possibility as a sort of a copy of the real um, and his criticism of that notion. So when we when we talk about um, virtuality for Simondon, it's the idea of um, a sort of image of the real that would um, uh, uh, the possible as a as an image of the real, or the possible as like a, a sort of copy of the real, um, as opposed. So it's it's a, a, a purely uh, logical notion of possibility, as opposed to um, this idea of potentials as a physical um, uh, something real, um, a real capacity to bring about a transformation, uh, and and so it's this notion of potentials that we. Um, should be holding on to rather than this idea of the virtual as a, a copy of the real. Um, and then 
uh, right. It's, so then he he applies this notion of of relation to the the collective, um, and so if we want to think of the collective uh, while avoiding those two opposed uh, positions that I mentioned a while ago about um, either treating the collective as this sort of uh, pre-existing individual uh, in which we're all incorporated, or on the other hand, um, uh, or on the other hand, uh, bringing about the collective through some sort of um, um, uh, something inherent within the individuals, some need or some uh, capacity that is inherent in the individuals themselves. Uh, if you want to avoid both of those um, options, then we need to have some notion of the individuation of the collective and the ontogenesis of the collective. Um, and so it's only um, by thinking relation as, uh, so the, this notion of thinking uh, relation as having the status of being is um, sort of uh, correlated with this uh, notion of the ontogenesis of the collective, because it's only um, it's only if we have an account of the ontogenesis of the collective that we can think the relation between the individual and the collective or one individual and another um, as, as something that's constitutive of those individuals rather than some sort of external relation uh, imposed on those individuals. Um, yeah, and a question from Ion. Uh, so giving the relation, giving relation the status of being means a co-creation. How does this relation take shape by way of the collective? Um, yeah, so that's sort of what I was um, uh, talking about there. So um, it's only because we can think of the, coll the collective as being the product of a, a second individuation um, um, in which the subject undergoes more individuation. So the, the subject as something that contains both an individuated being and a, a pre-individual being. Um, so it's only because the subject contains this pre-individual charge or this um, aspect of nature that they can undergo further individuation and uh, and uh, that further individuation in the form of the collective. Uh, yeah, and so the sort of follow-up question here. So how do we differentiate between the characteristics of this beingness as opposed to co-creation of relation as object with form and matter? Um, I think... If I understand correctly, um, I think the um, the relation between uh, form and matter is uh, a sort of a sort of external relation in the sense that we're supposed to understand the notion of form and the notion of matter uh, uh, independently. We're supposed to be able to understand uh, each of those notions on their own, and then we. Um, we combine them together in some way to bring about an individual uh, as opposed to um, when we look at the ontogenetic position um, we, d we don't start from uh, sort of pre-existing or, or um, terms that are meant to be understood uh, independently um, as, as our starting point. We start from the process of individuation itself and uh, and then uh, the the sort of analogs of form and matter are the extreme points of that process, um, as opposed to um, uh, pre-existing terms. Well, thanks for that. That definitely um, is addressing the point 
Um, this is a very interesting uh, idea around the um, the kind of fluidity that this uh, conceptual way of, of thinking about um, the individuation and the uh, kind of emergence or genesis of a collective takes place. The previous paragraph to the reading that you just did, um, the, the very end of it, right underneath the part where he mentioned symbol, start, it, it sort of um, is a preamble, like leads into that next paragraph where he starts talking more about relation. But in the very end of that previous reading, <clears throat> he kind of outlines or sketches a little bit the the idea that in a collective, and I'm thinking like in a small collective setting, where there's no, uh, he, he's trying to point out that the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I was thinking the alchemy, but not really the alchemy, but the the exchange <clears throat> and um, uh, sort of the heterogeneity, the admixture of individuals and individuation, it seems to either renew the pre-individual status of each member of the collective, or it does something to the pre-individual. You guys probably can answer what that is, but it, it seemed to activate that forming the idea and the concept that the collective is not hierarchical in the formation of the relations. And this is prior to this new introduction of a, of, uh, a higher level concept where we have the relation um, as a kind of um, a being that seems to be differentiated from um, an object which has like signification where it's like this being requires an ongoing process. So it, it's definitely interesting to think of it in, in this type of a frame of in a small collective, there is no real hierarchy because the, the second one brings in signification. I think there is the, um, the uh, the adverse effect on the on the fragility of the genesis, creating you know trying to introduce some sort of hierarchy, um, forcing what seems to be a very natural process, and uh, so what I'm trying to say is in that previous paragraph he talked a little bit about how the collective and each individuation that's involved seems to allow for a kind of genesis. And I'm wondering what the effect on the pre-individual is for that. And then later, this idea of the relation is really interesting because if the relation, if the beingness of the relation is expanded beyond the dyad, 
then that's what made me curious about how we can really differentiate that this ontological the ontological sense of this beingness of the relation is different than like an object um, that is being co-created um, how we can kind of focus in on the or organicness organic nature of this beingness as opposed to um, I don't know, I'm trying to attribute some sort of aliveness to the beingness of the relation as opposed to like an inorganic kind of idea of a construction, something that might seem more like an object, you know, with, right. with various implications. Right, yeah. So there, there's a couple, a couple points in there that um, are... are um, uh, worth highlighting, I think. Um, so, um, you mentioned about um, the how this collective individuation has an effect on the individual, um, and and I think that's right. Um, so, um, it's only because um, the individual is not the complete reality. So, the individual, as an individuated being, uh, always has this charge of pre-individual reality that is associated with it. Uh, and then um, there can be this further individuation in the collective that that brings about a transformation in the individual. So the individual, uh, and this is connected with um, what we were talking about earlier with this ordeal of solitude um, as a sort of de-differentiation in the individual. So uh, an individual that is um, uh, already constituted and in some sense is uh, adapted to its environment um can can undergo some sort of crisis or some sort of process of of uh de-individuation um and then uh re-individuate in a into a collective um and uh we'll see more on this as we continue to read about emotions um as this process of uh this process of de-individuation de and re-individuation um and then um, I think one point um, where where I would want to make a a, a sort of um, qualification is um, when you suggest that um, we think of the uh, in individual in terms of uh, organism or or something along those lines. Um, I think we have to be careful not to. Um, not to sort of extend uh, concepts from vital individuation to other modes of individuation. Um, so um, he he gives us an account of uh, of the individuation of a living being, uh, and this is a, a specific um, portion of the the whole system. Uh, and other forms of individuation, in particular, when we talk about physical individuation we're talking about something that is not alive uh, and or not not organic in in that sense um, and uh, I think it, it is uh, worthwhile to to sort of keep those different terms separate um, because precisely because he gives us um, an account of the genesis of living beings um, 
as something distinct from uh, non-living entities of some kind. Um, so um, we can still think the individual in physical um, in 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 physical beings and non-living beings. Um, we can think of physical individuation uh, uh, without um, sort of importing um, notions from vital individuation. Okay, but in the construction of the of the beingness of the relation, right? If are we constructing something that it, you know isn't necessarily uh, a vital individuation? This the beingness of the relation that that's being generated um, by way of the relation. Uh, what's interesting is how can we should we think of it as, in fact, a kind of uh, non-vital or more inorganic uh, being? Or is it a more on along the lines of uh, something that is vital, since it is, in fact, vital individuals that are involved in creating the, the relation, if it is a kind of being? Right. Um... I think we'll have to um, sort of uh, leave that question uh, aside for the moment and, and keep going. Um, um, we'll, we'll see more about the relationship between um, uh, the individual and the collective and um, the, the, uh, the type of individuation that is involved in as we continue. So let's um, go on to the next um, bit. I think it should take us to the end of the uh, of the chapter, uh, Angus. If you want to read, yeah. Um, are we at for being to being? Uh, no, we just read that. I think we're at uh, emotion is incomprehensible. Oh uh, yeah, you're right. Okay, um, emotion is incomprehensible according to the individual because it cannot find its root in the structures or functions of the individual qua individual. Its adaptation to certain acts or to certain behaviors is merely lateral. It seems that emotion creates a disadaptation so as to be able to remedy this disadaptation by way of a certain number of ancillary manifestations. Indeed, the adaptation-disadaptation criterion does not suffice to account for emotions, since it grasps emotion after the fact and its consequences or marginally in the reactions of the individual's adaptation to emotion. The individual communicates with emotion and adapts relative to it, so as not to struggle against emotion, as is generally said, but in order to exist with emotion. There is a correlation of the individual and the charge of pre-individual nature and emotion, but we can only grasp behaviors that do not have their own explanation within themselves if we take on a study of emotion that wants to restrict it to the structures of the individuated being. It will therefore have to rely on a complex set of reductive, sup reductive suppositions like that of bad faith for Sartre, in order to reduce emotion to a phenomenon of the individual. Emotion also cannot be interpreted correctly by attempting to consider it as social, if the social is conceived as substantial and interior to the birth of emotion, and capable of provoking emotion within the individual by way of an invasive action that comes from outside. Emotion is not the action of the social on what is individual. It is also not the momentum of the constituted individual. They would constitute the relation starting from a single term. 
emotion is the potential that is discovered as signification by structuring itself within the individuation of the collective. It is incomplete and unachieved as long as it is not fulfilled within the individuation of the collective. It does not exist veritably as emotion outside the collective, but is like a conflict between the pre-individual reality and the individuated reality within the subject, which is the latency of emotion and is sometimes confused with emotion itself. This emotion is not a disorganization of the subject, so to speak, but the initiation of a new structuration that will be able to stabilize only within the discovery of the collective. The essential instant of emotion is the individuation of the collective. After this instant or before this instant, the complete and veritable emotion cannot be discovered. Emotive latency, the inadequacy of the subject to itself, the incompatibility of its charge, to, of, its charge of nature and its individuated reality indicates to the subject that it is more than the individuated being and that it contains the energy for a further individuation. But this further individuation cannot take place within the being of the subject. It can only take place through this being of the subject and through other beings as the trans-individual collective. Emotion is therefore not implicit sociality or disturbed individuality. It is that which within the individuated being contains the possible participation in further individuations that incorporate the pre-individual reality remaining in the subject. It is not surprising that emotion is situated within the dark zone of, psychosomatic, of the psychosomatic relation. It cannot be thought whatsoever via the hylomorphic schema. Arising from the pre-individual, emotion seems to be able to be grasped before individuation as an invasive disturbance in the individual and after, indiv after individuation as a functionally defined signification on the level of the collective. <clears throat> but neither that which is purely individual nor that which is purely social can explain emotion which is the individuation of pre-individual realities on the level of the collective established by this individuation. Emotion cannot be grasped by the extreme terms of the development, which it joins together through its own cohesion, i.e. the purely individual and the purely social, insofar as these, these terms are the extreme terms of emotive individuation only because emotion localizes them and defines them as the extreme terms of a relational activity that it establishes. The purely social and the purely individual exist with respect to trans-individual reality as the extreme terms of the entire scope of the trans-individual. The individual and the social do not exist as antithetical terms with respect to one another. The trans-individual has only been forgotten in philosophical reflection because it corresponds to the dark zone of the hylomorphic schema. That seems like the general point here um, is that the, the dark zone between psychology and sociology is emotion, which is why the previous um, sort of attempts to explain it have been inadequate, because I think it from either the individual or the uh, purely social perspective. Yeah, so there's, um, I think, two different dark zones going on here, and both of which um, sort of uh, coincide with emotion. Um, so we have... Um, the dark zone between the social and the psychological or between the collective and the individual. Um, and then we also have a dark zone between um, the mind and body. Um, and so in, in the, the second case, in the mind body case, um, emotions obviously have some uh, status or some um, uh, position uh, on the boundary or, um, 
overlapping the boundary between mind and body. Um, so obviously there's a, um, a sense in which um, emotions are psychological states, they're, they're states of the mind, but at the same time, we, we feel emotions in a bodily sense uh, and you have you know, uh, a state of uh, fear, your heart will start um, beating faster and uh, um, you have all sorts of physical responses that are um, part of your emotional reaction to something. And some authors have tried to um, uh, sort of reduce emotion to just a, a, a physical response. And so um, the physical response would be the, the real um, sort of core of emotion. And then the experience of the emotion would be just sort of an epiphenomenon um, and then maybe the more traditional um, approach would be to take the the uh, psychological experience of the emotion as fundamental, and then say that there's this sort of bodily accompaniment um, that that is brought about by that um, uh, psychological experience. But in either case, you're sort of splitting emotion in half, and and then trying to give us an account of uh, the. The relation between these two halves like you have a a, a bodily half of emotion and um, a psychological half of emotion and then you have to say that one is the cause of the other or they interact in some way or, or something like that um, whereas uh, for Simon Don we have to start from emotion itself as uh, something that has a, a genesis we have to look at how the pre-individual reality is uh, undergoes a further individuation in emotion. Um, and at the same time, this allows us to uh, understand the insertion of the individual in the collective. So we're sort of, um, we're sort of um, dealing with two obscurities at the same time. Uh, so uh, emotion is something uh, that um, in the individual, um, is is a sort of disadaptation um and so again we have um one sort of approach uh, a, a sort of um darwinian approach to emotions would be to treat emotions um the the physical response of the emotions uh the physical aspect of of the emotion as um serving essentially for uh signaling purposes and and so darwin um if i remember correctly he he talks about um how different um, sort of uh, universal gestures of human beings, like smiling or or uh, or um, frowning or um, whatever other facial expressions uh, um, and and things like that, as um, signals of of a state to others. Uh, and so, emotions in this picture would be some sort of um, mechanism for uh, ad adapting individuals to the collective. Um, but then we also have this other um, other uh, sort of traditional concept of emotions as something that the individual struggles against. Um, uh, and um, we, we have this account of, um, of some sort of um, uh, integration into the collective through suppressing certain emotions. Um, so, I mean, we can all think of experiences where, um, you know, someone uh, 
uh, I don't know, did something that to anger you and you have to sort of suppress your anger to, you know, um, allow you to, um, maintain a, a social relationship with that person, uh, even if it's a, a coworker or someone you don't really, um, have a, a close relationship to, but, um, there's this, uh, sort of universal experience or, or widespread experience of suppressing our emotions for the sake of, uh, maintaining a collective, um, and, uh, so there's this sort of opposition between these, these two, um, different ways of looking at the, the relationship between the emotion and the collective. Uh, so either, either emotions are essentially, um, mechanisms to insert us into the collective and to signal to other members of the, of the collective, or emotions are something that have to be suppressed in order to, um, to maintain a collective. Um, and so this opposition, uh, should be taken as a sign that, um, this notion of, of the emotion is, is sort of, um, inadequate. Uh, and, and so we have to instead think of, uh, emotion as, uh, as a part of the insertion of the individual in the collective, um, in the sense that, uh, there's this, um, de-adaptation aspect to emotion. So emotions are like, we, we, we talk about being troubled by emotions or overcome by emotions. Um, there's a sense in which the emotion um, makes us uh, uh, less able to to carry out our, our sort of day-to-day -day tasks if we're um, overwhelmed by a certain emotion. Uh, and um, But then uh, through that integration into the collective and that um, new individuation that we can undergo, uh, we... we um, emotion serves as the 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 sort of uh linkage between the individual and the um and the collective through this new individuation right and uh so angus has, has uh posted a, a comment here about um uh something i, I don't think i've come across this but I've, I've seen sort of similar um ideas but something like an empirical moral philosophy um which would the, the idea is that you would develop a moral philosophy based on uh, universal emotional expressions. Um, um, right, so, um, yeah, this, this sort of approach would be one, uh, one of the approaches that Simondo is trying to avoid or, or, or criticizing here uh, in the sense that it, um, it would sort of start from individuals as already constituted beings that have certain um responses like the the um emotional expressions of these individuals are are sort of built in from the beginning and we have no account of um the individuation or the genesis of these individual beings um so um uh, i think uh i think I mean, we'll, we'll see in the uh, conclusion um, some account or, or some discussion of ethics or what type of ethics of individuation we can have. Um, but there's a kind of um, um, uh, there's a kind of ethics, I think, already built into some of the discussion of spirituality that we've talked about um, an, an ethics of uh, 
of the trans individual. Um, so there's a, a an idea of um, the good life as the life that um, brings about this objective immortality through um, the trans individual. Uh, and this is completely opposed to an idea of starting from some basic set of universal emotional expressions and then trying to derive a, a moral philosophy from that. Um, so yeah, I think that's um, uh, a good um, sort of counterexample of uh, something we can set in opposition to what Simone um, yeah, and so we have a, a, another comment from Ion um, that emotions seem to be predisposed to a, a soul or a mind in a transcendental state whereby a pre-individuality may be present. Um, so I, would, I wouldn't use the term transcendental, but um, what I would say is that um, uh, in, in emotion, we have um, this... Uh, experience of uh, undergoing um, a de-differentiation and a re-differentiation uh, or de-individualization to and uh, a re-individualization so we um, we uh, sort of lose our capacity to um, to sort of go about our everyday business um, and uh, we we sort of reincorporate ourselves into the collective um, through this uh, through this process of emotion so emotion is is the experience of uh, undergoing that second individuation that brings about the collective uh, and so insofar as we um, experience an emotion on our own and not as part of a collective um, that that emotion is always uh, incomplete in some sense. Uh, it's only in the collective that we have something like um, uh, a resolution of emotion or a completion. Um, we're a little bit early, but um, I think this is a good stopping point for today. Um, and we can pick up from the conclusion next time, if that's all right with everyone. Uh, right. So, yeah, the conclusion is um, fairly long. It's, uh, I think, about 25 to 30 pages. Uh, so it'll, it'll take us a couple of weeks to get through it, but we're um, getting close to the end of the uh, the first volume, which is the book itself. Um, and uh, as I mentioned last time, we'll, we'll take a look at um, another text uh, after we finish that um, before we uh, decide whether to go on to read the second volume. Um, I started reading the conclusion, and he, in that first couple of sentences, he says that there's a a kind of normativity, I guess, that we can we can establish on the you know thinking the collective through the trans individual. I'm interested to see if um, it has to do with the distinction between the two senses of trans individual that we've discussed a few times. Yeah, that's a good question, um, and I don't have an answer. Um, but we'll have to um, we'll have to uh, keep that in mind as we read the. Okay, uh, so thanks everyone. Um, hope you have uh, a good holiday uh, for those who are celebrating, um, and uh, I'll see you all next week.